from Mark. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the hell where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. Poor John. Poor disciples. As my friend Hardy Clemens says, those disciples, they just keep stepping in it and tracking it all around. You can define the it for yourself, but Hardy was from Texas. (laughs) Suffice it to say that in Mark's gospel these last few weeks, the disciples have not fared too well. They're not looking so good in today's passage either. Let's take a quick look through chapter 9 and how they got to this point. So take out your Bibles. We are in church. Unless we're at the baseball diamond, I'm not sure. Where. <laughs> In verses 1 to 13 of chapter 9, Peter, James, and John witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus, literally, on the mountaintop with him. As they head down the mountain, Jesus tells them of his impending death, whereupon they scratch their heads, ask a few esoteric questions, and wonder what he might mean. But perplexing, though all that is, these ordinary fishermen from Galilee are the chosen. They're in Jesus' inner circle in places of power and privilege as part of his in-group, privy to his inmost thoughts, witnesses to his most amazing life events. What a heady trip that must have been. And don't think the others left behind in the valley don't notice. 
In verses 14 to 29, they're back down the mountain. The text says, When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and some scribes were arguing with them. Uh-oh. <laughs> Not good. But calmly, Jesus asks what the argument is about. Immediately, a person in the crowd tattles about the failure of the left-behind disciples to cast a malicious spirit out of his son. Imagine it. The hapless disciples standing around, sheepish, looking at the ground, hands in their robes, hangdog expressions on their faces, wanting to sort of melt down into the dust or vanish into the air. Peter, James, and John are not implicated in the failure. They've been with Jesus on the mountain. There's a division in the disciples' ranks now. Insiders and outsiders. Winners and losers. Successful ones and failures. At this this point, Jesus appears a trifle frustrated with the whole mess. You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Okay, maybe he's a bit more than frustrating. But with good reason. They still don't get what he's trying to teach them. They're still fumbling around, unable to understand that the power and authority he possesses is available to them as well. This part of the story ends with Jesus healing the boy and the disciples asking in verse 28, Why couldn't we do that? The gospel writer is painting an uncomfortable and unflattering portrait of Jesus' closest companions, with whom even Jesus himself is clearly displeased. Last week, Julie guided us through verses 30 to 37. To recap that scene, Jesus reiterates his impending death, and the perplexed group continues to scratch their heads and wonder in silence. But they argue in verse 34 about who is the greatest among them. That's no wonder, given the previous chain of events. But this argument reveals a keen insight into their confusion about his death. They're confused about Jesus' death because they are still clueless about his life. Jesus has stated that his kingdom is not of this world. He reveals his upcoming suffering, talks about the humility required of disciples and the stark realities of following him. And all the while, his disciples are jockeying for position in his earthly kingdom. A frustrated Jesus begins to use hyperbole to make his point clear. He takes a child without status, honor, or power, the last in that society. He sits that child on his knee and schools the twelve in the ways of the kingdom once again. This child is the first in my kingdom, boys. Mine's the kingdom that turns the status quo of power, privilege, honor, and prestige on its ear. In my kingdom, there's no status, no absolute earthly power. My kingdom protects and elevates the vulnerable, serves the least, Gives, cares, accepts anyone who seeks to follow. Faithful followers humble themselves, deny themselves, 
take up crosses, and go straight to the back of the line. And when anyone comes up behind, the faithful ones give up their place and move to the back again and again and again. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Capiche? We, we good here, guys? And this brings me to the text for today. What happens here in this scene seems to me like good fodder for a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> or for the comic strip non sequitur. It also reminds me of my youth ministry days. During a youth council meeting, while everyone seemed engaged in substantive discussion about activities that we could plan to enhance the spiritual lives of our youth and offer them meaningful discipleship opportunities, 10th grade Amy raises her hand. I call on her, expecting her to offer some insight or pertinent suggestion. She says, I just want to know, when are we going to Six Flags? That happened. Seriously. And because of that incident, I have a good idea of how Jesus might feel here. Picture it in your mind. Jesus has just been teaching about the least and the last, speaking passionately and clearly about the lavish, abundant welcome and acceptance of his kingdom. He's still bouncing the little one he used as his object lesson on his knee. And John, his beloved disciple, one of his inner circle, raises his hand and says, "Uh, Jesus, we just shut down this guy who was casting out demons in your name because he was not following us. Not, not, Not following Jesus, but not following us? Wow. That's when discipleship stumbles and goes off track. When we claim that we are now qualified by our status as insiders to stand at the gate of the kingdom of God and determine who gets through. Did you hear me? Would you like for me to read that again? I'm going to because I want you to squirm a little bit. That's when discipleship stumbles and goes off track. When we claim that we are now qualified by our status as insiders to stand at the gate of the kingdom of God and determine who gets through. Now, at this moment, Jesus proves his divinity to me. Because a mere human like me would have lost it. I know how much I wanted to throttle Amy when she derailed the conversation in youth council that day. But Jesus, though clearly not pleased, clearly frustrated, stays calm and once more seizes the teachable moment, responding carefully and clearly to John's presumptuous statement. John Anyone who does a deed of power in my name cannot be an enemy. 
Anyone who understands that my kingdom is about offering a cup of cold water to someone who is thirsty, that person is one of us. Anyone? Anyone. Let's focus on this for just a moment. In these, chapter, in these ninth chapter characterizations of Jesus' disciples, Mark is speaking to his own fledgling community of Jesus' followers who are a generation or so removed from the time in Jesus' life that's described here. His portrayal highlights the foolishness and the fallacy in the way the disciples of that day, in the way we humans, I think, of any day, tend to behave and addresses two life tensions that interconnect and that fuel and feed each other, and that sometimes can blind us to human need and wreak havoc on human community. One of these tensions is our tendency to compete with and compare ourselves to others that results in the kind of honor-shame dichotomy to which Julie referred last week. The other tension is in our relationship to and understanding of scarcity and abundance that feeds and fuels the comparisons and competitions visible in the actions and responses of the disciples. We can see ourselves in them if we face our need to belong to the in-group, climb the ladder of success, or work for a level of prestige and influence to which our culture says we should aspire. Sometimes our blind spots make us think we have arrived that our blessed status allows us to sit in judgment on others, like John does in this passage. Sometimes our insecurity about our inadequacies leads us to be threatened by or jealous of those around us who are able to accomplish that which we cannot, like the other disciples who failed to cast out the demon earlier in the chapter. This passage holds the perfect relational storm a favored one looking to protect his privilege and enhance his status, and a group who has failed trying to regain their lost face, all competing with and comparing themselves themselves to the one who actually healed in Jesus' name but wasn't one of us. Whether we act out of our privileged status as Jesus' inside group or out of our shame, insecurity, and inadequacy, the end result is the same. We judge. We marginalize. We demonize. We exclude. This tendency to compete and compare is toxic to community. Jesus knows it. And he's trying every antidote he knows to neutralize the poison. Let's bring this closer to home. Squirm some more. Isn't this kind of behavior poisoning our national, political, and religious water right now? Don't we have folks claiming to be close to Jesus? Claiming to know what Jesus wants and who Jesus loves? Speaking and acting in Jesus' name? And yet, are not these the ones quickest to exclude, condemn, demean or marginalize anyone who is not following us? Those they exclude are the very ones Jesus calls the least and the last. 
immigrants, same gender loving people, welfare moms, blue collar workers, pregnant teens, women of all stripes, people of color, anyone who doesn't espouse a certain brand of religion or politics. I submit to you that these strident, self-righteous voices who claim to know who God does and does not love must not have read this passage from Mark's gospel lately. Let's bring this closer still. We have a heretic among us. His name is Michael Robert Lee. (laughs) And it's not just because he's a Yankees fan. Many Christians would drag Michael Lee out and burn him at the stake. Do you know why? Because Michael dares to say out loud here in church that he knows atheists who do more good and offer their lives in selfish service to the poor, the needy, and the outcasts more effectively and consistently than many Christians he knows. In fact, he goes so far as to say that some atheists live more like Christians than many Christians. Off with Michael's head? (laughs) Of course not. And Jesus isn't having any of that either. Eugene Peterson's version of Mark 9, 39 to 41 says it plainly. No one can use my name to do something good and powerful and in the next breath cut me down. If he's not an enemy, he's an ally. Why, anyone by just giving you a cup of water in my name is on our side. Count on it that God will notice. Jesus, not Jesus' followers, is the gatekeeper. And he's also the gate. In verse 39, the gate swings wider and wider, jockeying for the last place in line to get through is the only entry requirement. The other tension in the passage, and perhaps the one at the very heart of it all, is that of scarcity and abundance. The disciples have this confused. If you read closely, you know that they are basing their judgments about themselves and others on external measures of abundance. Status, accomplishments, place on the honor-shame continuum, social and relational capital. The comparisons fuel the scarcity. Are we enough? Do we have enough? Do we have more than they do? Are we doing this right? They can't come in here if they don't do this. Here they are, the closest to God's anointed one, who says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And all they can think of is who is the greatest, who holds the power, And who's allowed into the group? These disciples are standing knee-deep in a river and dying of thirst. I wish we had Kathy Matea. In Free For All on Tuesday, the group discussing this passage focused much of their discussion on cumber, the things in our lives which encumber us, weigh us down, keep us from seeing all that we have, Reduce our capacity to celebrate and be grateful for the gifts all around us. Give us tunnel vision about what is most important. 
As God's beloved children, we've been given this world to enjoy and to tend. We've been offered relationship with the one who is life. We have been graced with the opportunity to walk hand in hand with Jesus on a journey with others who are in the river with us. When we fail to recognize that, we live out of scarcity. We can never be or have enough. When we live out of what we lack, we sound like John or like some of our would-be presidents or we label as heretics the Michael Lees of the world, or make demons of those we don't understand. Now look at verses 42 to 50. In this passage, Jesus suggests a remedy to the ills that result from comparing, competing, and worrying about how much stuff or relational clout or success and honor we have. Let me be quick to say that in these verses, Jesus is not recommending self-mutilation. And that's really a serious statement because our young people don't know this. He's also not describing what sends a person to hell. And if we go down either of those literal roads, we miss the point entirely. Sometimes I think that's why we go down them. Notice instead, though, that four times in these eight verses, Mark uses the word scandalizo, translated stumble, to indicate Jesus' major point. This is the word from which we get our word scandalize. In its use here, scandalizo means that one's obstructive and offensive actions can scandalize so thoroughly that a movement derails or a would-be disciple walks away in disgust. This instruction of Jesus not to scandalize a little one or oneself, situated at this point in the text, after all that has occurred with the disciples, is in part a call to look into the mirror, to confront your own inner gatekeeper, to take honest stock of your opinions, your judgments, and your prejudices, and to cut off those with the potential to derail your spiritual life or the spiritual lives of the vulnerable and powerless around you. The way we respond to or in front of the most vulnerable ones around us affects both them and us. Our spiritual well-being and theirs is entrusted to us. So if we traumatize or scandalize one of these little ones by judging or excluding them, or others like them, so harshly that they turn away. We have offended the cause of Jesus. Do our attitudes and actions teach competition or compassion, exclusion or embrace, purity or peace, judgment or justice? Jesus' point is clear. We can derail spiritual vitality in our own lives or in the lives of others with our eyes. This includes both what our eye longs for and lusts after and what our eye looks down on, looks past, or fails to see. We can trip up our spiritual journeys with our hands, both by what we reach for and clutch onto greedily 
and by what our hands handle roughly or refuse to touch altogether. We can stumble on the road to discipleship when we set our feet on unhealthy paths or take immoral side trips, but also when we trample others underfoot, kick them when they're down, or step over them without stopping to help. Stumbling blocks, offenses abound. They frequently come from within ourselves. Our spiritual lives are ours to tend, and when we seek, grab, or chase after those things that trip us up on our spiritual journeys, distracting us from God's way, then we must repent. Turn around, let go, look away, cut it off, and out. Because our choices and our actions of commission and omission affect others as well as ourselves. This word scandalizo is also a play on words. Scandalizo is related to scandalon. You didn't know you were going to have a Greek lesson this morning, did you? Which refers to the actual mechanism that springs a trap, to the foot stuck out to trip, to the rock in the road. Literally, I tripped over a rock in the road the other day, and I did a full gainer onto the pavement. And at my age, that is not a fun thing to have happen to you. Scandalon was figuratively applied to Jesus, whose person and career were so scandalizing to the expectations of the Jews concerning the Messiah that they rejected his way, cutting themselves off from the abundant life he offers. They miss the very thing they look for and long after because their expectations and judgments are misplaced. Jesus and the way of Jesus looks like a stumbling block to those who, like Jesus' disciples, are tempted to claim spiritual privilege at the expense of offering grace and limiting judgment. The irony here is that those who follow Jesus scandalize those whom the culture touts as powerful and successful. To be last is to be first. Whoever is not against us is for us. This kind can only be cast out through prayer, not isolation or imprisonment. Remove whatever is in your way of following me and the abundant life I offer. When you let me be the gatekeeper, Jesus says, then all you have to do is accept the scandalous abundance I offer you. Walk through my gate where all are welcome, where there's no need to worry or scheme. There's enough of everything. There's enough because I'm enough, and my grace is sufficient for whatever it is you thirst for. Are you derailing your spiritual life because of your blindness to the needs of others, your unwillingness to get your hands dirty, your tendency to walk the safe or judgmental road? Are you willing to look honestly in the mirror that Jesus holds up here 
and cut out or off that which is keeping you spiritually immature? Are you willing to follow this one who scandalizes the powerful and lifts up those little ones standing at the back of the line? Are you standing knee-deep in this river of grace and abundance, but dying of thirst? 